0: let's bow and pray. Good morning, Father. Thank you for this day. Thank you for uh, another opportunity to open up your word. May your spirit uh, make your word alive, make uh, my words clear, and make the listener um, really attentive to what your spirit is saying to him. We love you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. The news, really, the news is not good. Everywhere you look, it's very true. It seems like the fabric of our society is falling apart. I mean, you can look at the statistics, it says divorce rates keep climbing, clinical cases of depression are up, addictions to meth, OxyContin, heroin is up, porn is a billion dollar industry. People incur debt like crazy because they want consumerism is our national pastime and Truthfully, sex is no longer sacred to people out there. It's it's like a game for them. While these issues may be, oh, true and troubling, as a pastor, to me, this is not the real problem. These things are not the real issue. What really troubles me is that those who claim to, to know the Lord, those who go by the name Christian, which means I identify myself with Christ, I am his follower, they're struggling with the same issues. Pretty much, if you read the statistics, to the same degree. These things are just as troublesome for Christians as non-Christians. There, there's no obvious difference. Why? Why is there really no obvious, dif- obvious difference when you read the statistics of those who claim Christ and those who don't? Are we not supposed to be different? We are to be, are we not set apart, sanctified, that's what set apart means, holy to the Lord? Why do we seem to fail and fall just as much as those who do not? Revelation keeps saying we need to be overcomers. Why aren't some people? What's the problem? I think I know what Jesus would say. I'm pretty sure what he would say. If you turn to Mark chapter 12, he had a very interesting dialogue with some Pharisees and Sadducees. People who were considered wise, they were the ones in the know. But as they talked over spiritual things with Jesus, they were clueless. And Jesus gives them a diagnosis of their problem called spiritual anemia. If you look at verse 24 of Mark 12, it's after he gets in a long debate with the Pharisees and then the Sadducees and they're asking him about spiritual things and Jesus says they're clueless. And he gives the reason why in verse 24. He says, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because, Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Why were the Pharisees clueless? Because they really didn't know the Scriptures. And they didn't know the power of God. If, as you study the Bible, these two things will always be linked together, the Word of God and His power. They're inseparable, actually. If you want His power, the avenue for His power is the Word of God. And because they didn't know the Word, they did not have his power, his insight, his understanding, his wisdom. If you want spiritual power, the ability to overcome the weakness of self and the world's fallenness, you need to know the Scriptures. You just do. And if you don't know the Scriptures, count on being spiritually weak. I personally believe that's why many of us are just as prone to defeat as non-Christians, because we don't know our Scriptures We're spiritually anemic. And in my personal opinion, our problem is getting worse. I was reading the Barner Report, and they are talking about the Christian church, those who claim to be Christian. And listen to one of their findings. It says, the number of those, and this is Christians, the number of those who are skeptical or agnostic towards the Bible, meaning they don't really trust it, who believe the Bible is just another book of teachings written by men, that contains stories and advice, has nearly doubled from 10% to 19% in just three years. This was taken in um, last year, 2014. They're saying in the last three years, the number has gone from 10% being very skeptical to the Bible to 19%. And these are Christians saying, when I read the words of the book, I'm not sure that they really are divine. So the non-Christian, in a Christian world, is losing faith in God's most powerful weapon. We should expect that from non-Christians, but not from Christians. And as a result of this downgrading of Scripture, anemia, weakness, is flooding our ranks. We are weak. To me, it's troubling because my main job as a pastor is to teach this book. It's my main job. The Scriptures were so important to the first Christians in the book of Acts that Peter chose some deacons, men filled with the Spirit, so he and the other apostles could spend their time praying and studying the Word. I'm not so sure the ministry of the Word is considered as honorable and necessary as it once was. I really am not. I often feel when people see me reading the Bible in my office, they, they look at me and, and I don't think they think I'm doing real work. Hmm, what's he doing in there? Why isn't he out visiting people, initiating new programs to reach those who are lost? Design strategies to meet the needs of the young church in our community. Why doesn't he do something that really makes a difference? The Bible's nice, but isn't it time that we move past that and do things that really affect people's lives? I feel that. I can feel that in conversation because the Bible does, is not really mentioned as much as it used to be when people form their opinions. This reality of devaluing the Scriptures or just plain unfamiliarity of it by many Christians has bothered us as a staff. It really has. So we feel compelled to do something to fight spiritual anemia. Our next series of discussions is going to be entitled, God Breathed. And the underlying is, getting to. we want you to get to know your Bible and why it's so important. We're going back to basics. In a sense, very simple stuff that past Christians assumed other, other Christians adopted, but now I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure people are that trusting of this book. We want everyone in this church to be thoroughly convinced that the words written down are God's very words. They are His very words. They are God-breathed. They are given to us to know so we can have God's power to live and overcome in this world. That's the point. And so each week we're going to discuss a different aspect of the Bible so you will know just how wonderful this book is that you own. We're going to talk about different aspects to it. Today, I just want to begin to show you how it's promised to give us power and strength. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1. It's really the idea of this is to see that the Bible is the sure cure to our spiritual anemia. For those of you who do feel weak, I want to reassure you that's what this is for. The verses we're going to look at is chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 of Second Peter. Peter is going to explain to believers where we can find our source of strength. In verse 3 says, His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Let me read that again. His divine power, God's divine power, His grace has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So, how to live as Christians in this world. The power comes to us through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. So what this is going to give us, the cure to spiritual anemia is... Basically, I'm going to call it's becoming, it's called divine partaking. Divine partaking. This is a fascinating concept. It always has. It's one that's created a lot of theological debate. But divine partaking means being yoked together with the person of God. When Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, a yoke of oxen would put two together so that they'd move forward. Divine partaking is being yoked together with the life of God and experiencing firsthand His power in your life. His power equips us to live, as this says, according to the calling we've received, to live our life in godliness, to actually glorify God with our life. Last week we said, be strong, immovable, always abounding. That's what this means. God's grace and power so we can be strong, so we can be immovable, always abounding is found in something. And that's what we're going to understand. But in order to be spiritually strong, you've got to want to be strong. You've got to want divine partaking. Do you feel weak? Do you feel that you need something to strengthen you? Do you really want to live in victory? That's really the question. It's your choice. If you say, no, I'm fine, I'm doing good, then honestly don't do anything, and you will see defeat will come, weakness will come. But if it is yes, then this verse describes for us two means to obtain his strength, or to get to the goal of what God wants us to be, is strong people. Two means to reach God's desired goal. Really, it's very simple. The means are very simple. However, people don't like simple answers. People are very impressed with sophisticated solutions rather than clear teachings from scripture. I have found people think that being part of something that is complex with highly intelligent elite experts, man, that's the route to go. If I go away for a year to a monastery and meditate in silence, or I will finally obtain the power. if I go to Benny Hinn and pay $100 for Miracle Crusade? That's how we get strong. If I join an intense discipleship group that's just serious and passionate, man, I will be powerful. But that isn't the teaching we're going to find here. That you have to form some elite group where you've got to find some teacher that is just brilliant, Actually, the two means to find God's power is rather simple because God is no respecter of persons. He does not play favorites, and he will not bend to people's efforts in a sense. He's not, he doesn't want to build your pride. He offers on a universal scale his strength and power to all people the same way. We find two two means. The first one says, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The first means God uses to receive his power is through the knowledge of him. Understanding the person of Christ, his example. To gaze upon his beauty, to ponder it, and then to imitate it. Jesus has been given to us so we can know God, what he's like, and then what godliness looks like in our life. Michael Green, the biblical commentator, makes a statement concerning this verse. He writes, God's gifts are enshrined in Jesus Christ himself. And in getting to know him, we enjoy the power to live a holy life. Perhaps in writing this statement, Peter is looking back to the life of Jesus, which made such an impression on him, That he once cried, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. No doubt Peter is thinking, too, of the glory of Jesus, which shattered him at the transfiguration, which revealed the impact of Jesus' person. It was Christ's whole life that impacted Peter. That is why John was able to say, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. Jesus' life was put on public display for all of us to see. It climaxed at the cross where we really understood God, His love, our sin, Christ's sacrifice. It's for us to gaze upon and learn from. To be imitators of Him, we need to follow Him. John says, by this we may know that we are in Him, that we we are in Christ. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. So the first way we receive his power is by gazing upon the beauty of Christ. To know him. To have the knowledge of Christ. The second one we find here, it says, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Jesus has given us promises. God has given us promises. And what promises are, are invitations to join God. To tap into his grace. God invites you. Do you want my power? Do you want my strength? Here are some promises. They're conditional. If you obey my promises, you will receive my grace. An invitation is always conditional. You must respond to it. If you don't believe and accept the promise, you don't get any power. This this isn't just some fairy dust. You have to read it and respond to it. It's conditional. Grace is conditional. It's not just automatically poured out on everyone. It has to be desired and received. I can give you an invitation to a party. You can say, come on over to my house for a party. But if you don't come, you will never enjoy the party. It's the same way with God's promises. So we have these two means to the goal, the knowledge of Christ and His precious promises. So the question is, where do I find these things? Where do I go to find these things? Do I wait for secret knowledge to just fall from the sky? Some people love secret knowledge. They love to read those stories about the boy who went to heaven. Or they love that person that just tells them this experience they had while they're looking at a sunset. And God hit my heart and I cried and I saw him. As if that is the means to getting the knowledge of Christ and his precious promises. Do I find promises in a fortune cookie after I ate my Chinese dinner? Ah, you will be very wise tomorrow. Is that where my promises come from? Do I wait for God to talk to me? I haven't heard him. I've never audibly heard him. I might have felt his presence nudging me in the heart, but is that the standard way God reaches out to me? Where is the source to tap into these two means? Are they only acquired by the few? Because some churches kind of put across it that way. The real serious people are the ones that really are hearing from God. There's only one place to find these. One place. One sure place. The Scriptures. That's it. I personally love the Scriptures because they are available to everybody in here. Go to Psalm 119 real quick. Psalm 119, verse 97. You see, God plays no favorites, so he offers the same opportunity for everybody. Special cults play favorites. Special religions play favorites. Special monks and Zen Buddhists play favorites. In true Christianity, everybody has equal access. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 97. The writer says, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Verse 98, is very interesting. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it's ever with me. So he's saying, if I study your word, I'm wiser than those I'm struggling and fighting against. Verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. So he's saying the elders, those older than me that are teaching to me, if I know the word better than them, I've got better understanding than they do. Verse 100, I understand more than the age, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste sweeter than honey to my mouth through your precepts i get understanding therefore i hate every false way what i love about this portion of psalm 119 is it levels the playing field it does not it does not exalt elite groups it says everybody through meditation and understanding of the word of god has access to the wisdom of god they are only found in the scriptures Anyone just by reading, studying, and believing the scriptures can tap into God's power. 1 Peter chapter 1, 23 to 25 describes the Word of God as a seed that's planted in a heart, that will take root, that will sprout, and once it grows, it grows into eternal life. It's a seed. 1 Thessalonians 2 13 says it's a working agent on me. Once it's in me, it works. It's powerful. John 6.63 calls the Bible life-giving words, that they breathe newness to those things which died. Romans 10.17 says faith comes through hearing and hearing the Word of God. So how do I want to strengthen my faith? Through hearing and hearing of the Word of God. Does faith come through lighting a candle? Does faith come through kneeling before a picture on a wall? No faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of God. 1 Corinthians 4:13 tells us the word makes those of us who once were separated family because we have an eternal seed, a new we're a new nation because of the word of God. John 5:24 says the word of God is like a bridge that bridges me over from the land of death to the land of life. It's a bridge. Matthew 4.4 says we can't live on bread alone. But we live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Personally, I can remember when the word of God first spoke to me. I can remember it. I mean, I had a Bible. I I I remember reading this book, and this guy was talking about how he gave a Bible to his uh, four-year-old son who never learned how to read, and his four-year-old son would go underneath the tree on a nice sunny day, underneath the shade and read it, and then he'd close it and he'd rest down, and his dad would say, what did you read, son? He said, I don't know, I can't read yet, but boy, I met with God. I used to read the Bible like that. I thought the Bible was like this. You know, amulet, I'd carry around with me. I'd put it on my my desk. Isn't that nice, (laughs) I got a Bible. But I remember the first time I re- this really hit me. I opened up the Revelation 3.16. I, I don't know why I started reading it. Revelation 3.16 says, Because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I am telling you that stung me. I stopped. And I had to come to the realization that maybe the God I'm dealing with is a lot different than I ever thought. it wakes you up it can makes you consider God as he really is that he's mighty so what is the goal if we go back to second peter when i encounter jesus and when i receive his promises both of which i believe come straight from his word i will start participating with the divine nature That's what it says. He has granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Some people teach that you become kind of like a god. You start becoming divine yourself. Actually, the Greek Orthodox call it, uh, they believe you become holier just by, you become more godly than other people in essence. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about that the Holy Spirit himself activates by the Word of God, that the Holy Spirit that's alive in you. And He starts working through you, and you start participating with God. You are yoked together with Him. You will start receiving power from this book, because it activates. Another we use uh, word we use for this, if you keep reading it says... We may become partakers of divine nature. It will cause us to escape from the corruption that's in the world because of sin. Cause us to escape sin's harmful effects on us. In other words, what this power's goal is, what God wants to achieve through me, through meditating on the life of Christ, through receiving and following his promises, is his goal for me is he wants me to be holy. I'm going to start living in holiness. That's the goal. Holiness, being transformed into the likeness of Christ. I'll start looking like him, acting like him, thinking like him, being like him. I will start to become holy. Holiness, however, is really misunderstood in our day. We often see holiness as being a very religious person who sleeps on Sundays, who starts ironing his socks, and who can no longer laugh at a joke. That's what we think holiness is. Holiness is... I, I, I barely can smile, but boy, I can wear a tie. That's what we think holiness is. That's not holiness at all. Holiness is not stuffiness, but rather it's wholeness. I finally become who I've meant to become. One writer puts it like this, to say that God is holy is to refer to the wholeness, to the fullness, to the beauty and abundant life that overflows within the Godhead. God lacks nothing. He is unbroken, undamaged, unfallen, completely complete, and entirely within himself. He is the indivisible one, wholly self-sufficient, the picture of perfection. That's holiness, to be complete in myself, to start becoming strong, integrity, full, clean, pure. So in human terms, a holy person the one who allows the power of God to flow through them because they meditate on the person of Christ and they receive his promises, this person becomes a unique person of strength. There's a new strength they receive. They are no longer anemic, but strong, holy. When you're strong, you're not swayed by popular opinion. You're not consumed with overcoming your insecurities. A weak person is a person who's always worried about their insecurities and their failures. How are people gonna see me? A strong people, a person gets over it. A strong people doesn't need people to like them. But rather the type of people, a holy person is the type of person that breathes life into others because they're secure in themselves, because they're full, they're whole. Isaiah 63 says, righteous ones, holy ones, are going to be called oaks of righteousness. Oaks, trees that have hard wood, that are strong. I can remember when I was a kid, across the street in the park, there was a giant oak tree, it had great branches to climb on. I would climb its branches, and I would climb really high. I could Look over the neighborhood, man, and those branches were strong. I'd wrap my arms around them, I could just hang and they would hold me up. One time as I was climbing down, there was one rotted branch and it was thick and I barely put my foot on it and it went boom and it cracked all the way down to the ground and it went boom. It snapped off with hardly any pressure. Though the giant tree in itself was standing strong in its glory and holding me up, there were some rotten branches, some weak branches they couldn't hold under pressure. Holiness is just like the strong branches. I can swing on them. I can play freely on them. But rotted branches are the spiritual anemic. They're the Christian who cannot stand under the world's pressure because they just are weak. They haven't been strengthened. They're easy to manipulate, to tempt, To depress. To beat. Because they're weak. Those who devour the word of God become strong. Strong branches. They do not give in to the hatred and anger that rules the world. Bad news doesn't cripple them. Insults don't poison them. They are oaks of righteousness. That's the whole point of 2 Peter. He is saying, God who wants to take care of your life, has given you His testimony of His Son and these great promises so that by them and through them you will participate, be yoked to God, so you will be holy, strong, an oak of righteousness. I've recently been reading the story. It's an incredible story. It's called The War to End All... It's basically called To End All Wars. It's a war story. It's about a Scottish soldier named Ernest Gordon. He was captured by the Japanese in World War II. He was put into a soul-killing prison camp. If you ever saw Bridge Over the River Kwai, it's the same prison camp where they had to build this 300-mile-long railroad track and bridge in the middle of the jungles where 80,000 men died in prisoner of war camps. Actually, that movie isn't accurate, Bridge Over the River Kwai, even though they whistled you remember that song? But that, that movie wasn't accurate, but the, but the movie To End All Wars is incredibly accurate. It's dark. It's a dark book. Because the prisoner war camps in Japan were, were places of death. Ernest writes that before he went into the war, he was a man who prided himself by living by logic and reason. He was a philosophy professor. So he entered a prison camp thinking sheer determination and reason could keep him alive and strong. Because he could control his thoughts, control his body, he'd be fine. But soon the conditions in his captors in the heat of South Pacific started crushing his spirit. And he saw hell all around him. He saw no meaning for life. He writes this, It was dawning on all of us that the law of the jungle is the law for man. It was a case of Red in tooth and claw, the law of survival of the fittest. I must look out for myself, forget everyone else. That's, he said, that's how every prisoner in the prisoner war camps lived. He went on to write, conditions worsened, as starvation, exhaustion, disease, took an ever-increasing toll. The atmosphere in which we lived became poisoned by human selfishness, hate, and fear. We had seen for ourselves how quickly it could strip most of our humanity, reduce us to levels lower than the beasts. These people would they would steal everything. People that were his Scottish comrades, because of their starvation, they would steal just grains of rice from each other. If somebody died, they were callous. They could care less. He writes, region, reason and logic became brutally silent. There's nothing. We just suffer, we die, that's it. But he did start noticing, actually he almost died. He had a terrible case of dysentery. He started uh, noticing that there were men in the camp who lived by a different standard. People would sacrifice their own rations to keep other men alive. Some who brought cheer were the very ones who were dying of typhoid fever. Even some who really believed there was meaning in suffering, they were the ones who had a deep faith and they had real kindness. He never before considered religious answers because here's the reason why. He said growing up, Jesus Christ was a figure in a kind of fairy story, suitable for children perhaps, but not for men. But in the camp, he had to find answers, and he found the New Testament. And he knew he needed to read it. He and a few men decided to just read the Bible and be honest with what they read. That was their approach. We're going to take the New Testament... Read it for what it says, ask questions, and be honest. He writes, before we endeavored it, we all knew it was a risky thing to do because if they didn't find answers, they were lost in their hopeless reason. Here's what he wrote. Through our readings and discussions, we gradually came to know Jesus. He was one of us. He would understand our problems because they were the kind of problems he had faced himself. Like us, he often had no place to hang his head no food for his belly, no friends in high places. He, too, had known bone weariness from too much toil, the suffering, the rejection, the disappointments that make up the fabric of life. Yet Jesus was no killjoy. He would not have scorned the man who took a glass of wine with his friends or a mug of McEwan's ale or who smiled approvingly at a pretty girl. The friends he had were like our own and like us. He writes, as we read read and talked, Jesus became flesh and blood. He said, here was a working man, yet one who was perfectly free, who had not been enslaved by society, economics, law, politics, or religious. Demonic forces had existed then as now. They sought to destroy him, but they did not succeed. True, he had been suspended on a cross and tormented with the pain of hell But he had never been broken. The weight of the law and of prejudice had borne down on him, but failed to crush him. He had remained free and alive as a resurrection affirmed. What he was, what he did, what he said, all made sense to us. We understood that the love expressed so supremely in Jesus was God's love, the same love we are experiencing for ourselves, the love that is passionate kindness, other-centered rather than self-centered, greater than all the laws of men. Learning of the real Jesus, power started changing him. He started serving people in the... This story is incredible. He writes this, As we became more aware of our responsibility to God the Father, we realized that we were put into this world not to be served, but to serve. It was faith, I felt, that enabled us to transcend our environment, to appropriate what was good and true in our education and tradition, and thus... Prepare us to make decisions on matter of ultimate consequences to us as human beings. Life started becoming full for him because he knew Christ and he read his word. Here was a man that was dying, weak, embittered. He became an incredible overcomer because he met Christ through his word. Because he believed the words written on a page. Because he took it at face value, he survived while other men perish in atheism and apathy and agnosticism and hopelessness. Tell me, has the scripture really woke you up? I mean really woke you up. Because this book is given to make you holy. Here's my final question for you. Do you know the scriptures? Do you know them? And have you ever experienced the power of God through them? Or, when bad things come your way, are they like that branch that my foot barely touched and it went falling down and couldn't stand? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I really do. I thank you, God, how clear they are. And I thank you, God, for um, this opportunity right now that we can begin again, that you always re-invite us to come and see your, your son and to come and hear his words. We love you, Father. In Christ's name we pray.